So if you guys have um, spent any time sharing the gospel with people, you may have run into some interesting characters and some interesting people. Um, one of the attacks that might get leveled at you, you know, I've witnessed to Catholics, I've witnessed to Muslims, I've witnessed to Mormons, I've witnessed to Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, when you get really get into the thick of it and you start explaining to them the gospel, the idea that Jesus came and he saved apart from our good works. He saved us before we did anything good or before we did anything bad, before any of all of those things. Jesus saved us, not because we were good. He saved us despite the fact that we were bad. And when you get into that, they start to ask the question, doesn't that just excuse you from doing, like you can just do whatever you want now? Like if Jesus saves you and your good works have no part to play whatsoever in this equation, then you can just do whatever you want. I remember I was very early in my faith. I just came to understand the gospel. I was standing in my living room at my dad's place and I was witnessing to my dad and my brother and I got stumped by that because I knew it was wrong. I knew you couldn't just do whatever you wanted, but I was such a baby Christian. I just didn't know how to respond to that. I was like, I don't know. Yeah, why do we have to do good things if we're saved despite the fact uh, that we are bad and can't earn anything or God's approval before, before um, the Lord? And the argument that I got sometimes is that it will produce bold sinners and they can actually point to some people, right? We see some people who pretend to be Christians, who run around doing whatever they want, thinking that they have no consequences because God will forgive me. There are actually people like that that are out there. You can see them on social media. And so this critique is kind of true. But should this be true for us, that we are bold sinners, that we run around without that we run around with very little knowing, thinking, presuming upon God's grace. I mean, the same accusation was preempted by Paul in Romans 6, 1 to 2. Here's what he says. He's just in Romans uh, shown everyone that we're saved by faith, not by works. And then he says in Romans 6, 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the gospel is not a message of mere forgiveness, even though this forgiveness is a central part of what the gospel is. It's a story of redemption and transformation. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's to take a sinful, wicked people and to transform those people into a people without spot or blemish. And Paul says the whole point of the gospel is to transform and redeem a people who couldn't do, them, do it themselves are people who are now dead to sin and alive to God. And the difference between the gospel of Jesus and the works righteousness of world religions, whether you want to say the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Catholics or the Muslims, all of it is about earning our approval before God as opposed to having faith in a God who has saved us. And the religions of this world try to fix their sin by law as if we're able to do it all ourselves. But we, by the gracious gift of the Spirit, we can actually grow in true godliness. And the Holy Spirit works us into a people of good cheer and joy and peace and patience and zeal for good works. But as Peter has made clear to us, this work of the Spirit is collaborative. We don't take a sit back. We don't lounge around in our chair saying, all right, God, when are you going to do this work in me? We work with the Spirit. And just because there are ineffective, passive and unfruitful Christians running around in churches, it doesn't disprove the effectiveness of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Everyone who believes can reach salvation. Those who truly belong to Christ will be changed 
as they are given every tool they need to put sin to death and to live in the Spirit. And so Peter now has a few important things he wants to say to the Christians that are around him that are listening so far in his works. And I've got three points for that. Number one, the importance of reminders. Number two, our earthly tabernacle. And number three, living, leaving a legacy beyond our lifetime. And so we're going to uh, jump right in on verse 12. I'm going to read just that one verse. Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter is now making all the necessary arrangements to help the future generational Christians that are beyond him because there's a hardship that they're going to have to endure that's right on the horizon. Peter in his life has faced many challenges, but through growing in the spirit, he has stood firm through all of them. And he knows that others will too, the same as he has, stand firm throughout these challenges and provided they are growing, they will be growing and abounding and flourishing and thriving Christians even in the midst of this adversity. They're the kind of Christians who, who can withstand the attacks of the world and the devil. And that's why Peter says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. It's a matter of first importance for Peter to remind Christians of their need to grow up into faith, to grow up into virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. You remember those eight qualities we talked about. It was a couple of weeks ago now, but they are important. And he's reminding them again of these qualities. You guys absolutely need to be growing. I'm going to remind you of this again and again and again and again. I mean, at first, this might seem to be an interesting thing that Peter wants to remind them of. In times of hardship, you might imagine Peter would say to them, hey, guys, you need to be stockpiling resources about now. Start building a bunker in your backyard. Make sure it's stocked for a couple of decades. Establish some networks. Learn some skills. Read the news. Lobby political powers. Donate to some political causes. No, that's not what he says to them. I mean, those things are fine. I'm not dissing those things. But this is what Peter says. He even says to them, I know you're established in the truth. The truth that you have. And so why is Peter so confident that the thing he needs to be doing in these dangerous times right now is to be reminding them of something that they already know? Why remind them of this? Because vastly more important in times of hardship than stockpiling resources or whatever external things is to be growing in your inner person. And that is how you will endure, not just improving your outer circumstances. You can survive a lot of hardship if your inner life is strong, even when your outer life may be falling apart. Things in this world, you see, are transient, they're changing, they're unreliable. Even the best communities that are out there can collapse under the right pressure. But what is permanent, what is unchanging, what is reliable is our God. And therefore, our loyal service and duty before God must always come first. Our character, our growth in the Spirit, the divine power of God who enables us to grow from one degree of glory to another must be our primary struggle. It must come first before external circumstances. It's hard to do. And that's why Peter has taken on the ministry of a reminder. In fact, that's pretty much most of what pastors do. Pretty much all of what pastors do. This entire ministry of the pastor to teach the people truth and then to remind them of it again and again and again and again. No matter how gifted, how established or how godly a congregation is, the strength of that congregation is whether or not they remember the things of the Lord. 
If they don't remember it, you can guarantee that that congregation will fall apart. A healthy congregation is one who is reminded of the truth again and again and again and believes it. In Isaiah 62, that Paul read out for us before, the prophet is predicting this future time when the people of God in Jerusalem will be blessed. There will be this immense outpouring of God's blessings and he will uh, make sure that there are watchmen on the walls of that city. That there will always be people who are watching and will never stop reminding the people that the Lord is there. Isaiah 62, 67 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Now this is the ministry of the new covenant minister. The apostles who first took this mantle, their job was to put the Lord into remembrance and take no rest until Jerusalem is established as a praise in all of the earth. This is one of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit as well. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And listen, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, when churches talk about the Holy Spirit, they may talk about a lot of different things, but they don't often talk about the Holy Spirit as someone who reminds you of things. In fact, that is the chief ministry that Jesus is speaking of here when He talks about the Holy Spirit. He'll teach you, and then having taught you, we'll just always remind you of it again and again and again and again. That is the Holy Spirit's ministry. That is the ministry of a pastor. That is a ministry of someone uh, who has been established and given office by God. We need to be reminded that we are, of what we already know. And the question is, well, why do we need to be reminded? What is it saying about us? We're forgetful. We've got a bit of amnesia sometimes. You might even say that the primary goal of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit is simply to remind and exhort. Paul even sends Timothy to the church in Corinth for the express purpose. He says, I'm sending you Timothy. Here's why I'm sending you Timothy, to remind you. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere and in every church. And you might say, well, I don't forget the gospel. In fact, come and ask me and I will tell you everything you want to know about the gospel. I don't forget what the Bible teaches. I don't forget what Jesus taught. Ask me a question about something and I can probably tell you what the Bible teaches on it. There are plenty of people out there with an impressive amount of Bible knowledge and discernment who can spot error from a mile away, who will catch on very quickly. If I say something that's wrong, their brain will go, hmm, I'm not sure about that. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have those skills. But Peter's not talking about us forgetting facts. He's not talking about us forgetting biblical data. He's talking about us forgetting to strive for godliness. And everyone falls into this trap. Doesn't matter how godly you are, doesn't matter how much you've read and how much you know, all of us can fall into the trap of not striving for godliness. Sometimes an impressive biblical knowledge is used as a smokescreen to cover up for our lack of godliness and self-control. Those are the people you often don't question because they know so much. But if we're honest, we love to stick in the world of abstract thoughts and facts, but we struggle to deal with sin and grow in godliness. But the New Testament is clear. The church must be devoted to good works and growth if she is to be the church. Listen to how Paul describes the same thing as Peter does in Titus 3, 4-8. 
Paul in Titus 3 is going, to, is going to talk about the gospel and look how wonderful this passage is. But then as I'm reading out the gospel, look at the uh, conclusion that Paul draws in it. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so what is Paul's conclusion based on this? Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And here he's talking to Titus. He says, Titus, I want you, this is your job as a gospel minister, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What is the end goal? of the gospel, a transformed people. That is what Paul wants. That's what Paul's telling Titus, insist on these things. Absolutely insist on these things because then it will produce a people who are careful to devote themselves to good works. This is Paul saying to Titus, here's how you lead the church. Here's what you must do. Be a reminder. Insist on these things over and over and over again. And this is how people are going to grow. So that those who believed in God, he says, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Peter's insisting on the same things, isn't he? He starts by reminding them of the divine power that they get, the gospel, right? The forgiveness, the cleansing, the, uh, the, the rescue from the corruption of the world, uh, the divine nature that's been given to us to help us grow in our faith. And then after saying that all these things have been given to you, he now expects those things to bear fruit for us to grow. If God has called Peter to the task of putting the Lord to remembrance and by extension, every minister of the gospel, then that means we also ought to be diligent remembering these things ourselves and for those in our lives and for those that we have uh, any sort of authority over. Are we really concerned with growing in our faith? I mean, when was the last time that we made a change in our life based on something that we learned from the word? Maybe you had a really good conversation with a Christian brother or sister and they really just hammered you on something and they didn't even know they were, they were just talking. And you went, I need to make a change. You came to church, you heard a sermon. And you thought, man, that was convicting. I need to actually do something about this. And I don't, I don't mean that you thought those things and then went away and didn't do them. I mean that you actually did do something. When was the last time you confessed and repented, but then actually made changes after you confessed and repented? Why am I asking you these things? Because that's the kind of people we need to be. The kind of people who, when we're reminded of who we are and who we ought to be growing into, we say, yes, Lord, and we get to work. We go out into that field and we say, yes, Lord. We aren't just hearers, we're doers. We only have a short time here on earth. And the future generations are depending on us to rediscover a godly culture, to be devoted to good works and to glory in the gospel so that they can apprentice and learn off us and see this is what it means to be a Christian. And this is exactly what Peter intends us to do. And this leads me to my second point, the earthly tabernacle. Well, our earthly tabernacle. Uh, verse 13. Peter says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter's saying, as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm around, this is what I'm going to do, remind you. This is what I'm going to do. Remind you to love and good works. And Peter is well aware that the end of his life is coming soon because the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who's risen again from the dead in John 21, meets with Peter 
has a great conversation with Peter. And the end of the conversation, he lets Peter know beforehand what's going to become of him. This is your future, Peter. He says in John 21, 18 and 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that is Peter, when you were young, you used to, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter knows that he will not die of natural causes. He knows that his hands are going to be stretched out. And of course, we know what that means. Crucifixion. He was going to be martyred for the gospel. But John, who gives this little footnote in here, lets us know that this would glorify God, the death of Peter. And this happened around the year 64 AD in Peter's life. A great fire had started in Rome. It ravaged the city. Roughly 70% of the city was burned to the ground. It was a city of a million people. It was enormous. It was one of the worst disasters in history. And in the aftermath, everyone was looking for answers. What happened? How did the city burn like this? And very soon after the disaster, the Emperor Nero, who was a wicked emperor at the time, had very little concern or pity for the people who had lost everything and started to build a palace in this chief area that he'd wanted to build a palace for ages, but there were all these pesky buildings in the way. And so the rumor quickly spread that Nero started this fire. He must have started this fire. He's wanted this place for ages. And now he's finally got it. He's burned it down and he's going to build his palace there. And this was a very bad rumor for Nero. This could have spelled the end of him. If everyone thought he burned the city down, that was pretty much the end of his rule and reign. In fact, the rumor got so bad that he played the fiddle while Rome was burning. This is what was going around the city. And so now, if you, if you know anything about Nero, he's one of the most depraved evil men to ever exist. And uh, I can't even talk about some of the worst things that he did. You know, it's just completely inappropriate to talk about here. And he was so wildly unpopular that he knew he had to blame someone. Not him, someone else. And he went, Christians, I'm going to blame the Christians. Because they were growing and they were growing very quickly in the city of Rome. And he decided, you know what? I'm going to blame the Christians for this one. And this started this huge persecution and all the Christian converts in the city came under some of the most intense persecutions that the church has ever faced. He began throwing men, women and children into the lions in the arenas for the, uh, you know, for the spectacle of the crowds. He demanded that everyone worship him as a god. And if he refused, which all the Christians did, he punished them severely. He stopped them from buying and selling in the marketplace. He would have dinner parties and crucify Christians all in his dinner parties and set them on fire to be candles for his feasts. And it was during this time that this King Nero, this evil emperor, captured Peter, brought him before everyone and sentenced him to death for the crime of being a Christian. And Peter, who felt unworthy to be killed in the same way as Christ, requested to be crucified upside down. And it fulfilled what Jesus said, Peter, you will stretch out your hands. And this was the death of the man that we're reading here today who died a glorious death, bearing witness to Christ until the very end. Now, at the time of Peter writing this letter, all these events were in the future. The great fire of Rome, the persecution of the Roman church, the persecution of all the church, really, across the empire. And Peter knew these hard times were coming. He was well aware of it. Jesus had 
told him that these things would happen. And so the nearness of his death made him all the more diligent to do his work as a gospel minister. He knows that the church will have to survive without him and that he needed to make every preparation so that church had the truth written for them. And now that all the apostles were dying off, he had to get it down on paper. He couldn't just, he couldn't just leave it to the next generation. He had to hand the baton onto them. And Peter wanted to relieve them with many reminders to believe the gospel, to grow in their faith and have the same, uh, to have the same sort of um, effort that he had in his faith. And what's interesting is how Peter refers to his death. He refers to it here as putting off the body. Now, literally in Greek, it's not the normal way you talk about a body. He says, putting off your tent or tabernacle. That's what it literally means. He refers twice to his own body as a tent. It's like it's just a tent for his soul, for him, a dwelling place. And it's an interesting way to view our bodies. Our bodies in a place, in a sense, are kind of the place that our spirits pitch their tent. It's, for, it's, a, it's a temporary dwelling place, our bodies that we have right now. But one day, as Peter says about his body, we're going to have to take these bodies off as well. These bodies will one day get taken off. And one of the things about a tent, tent is a temporary dwelling. Even today, we know about tents like that. We only dwell in tents for a short time when we're camping or when we're on holidays, right? And back in these days, you would bundle up your tent. If you're going on a business venture, you're going from town to town, you might pitch your tent along the way. It, it's the thing that you would have if you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner, you're a, a traveler, right? In the same way, Peter characterizes our lives and his life as a temporary dwelling place. We're just sojourners here. We're just on a journey, but one day we're going to take this body off. We're going to leave these temporary things behind. It's the same word used of Jesus that John says in John 1.14. talks about the word, that being Christ. He says, and the word became flesh. And see, here it says dwelt, but it really means tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Lord Jesus, too, He came to earth and He took on our flesh. And it says here, He dwelt among us. He took that flesh on as an earthly tent, just like we take on an earthly tent. He literally tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent with us. And Peter knows that the time is coming when He will put off His earthly tabernacle. But it won't always be this way. In the future, we will receive a new tabernacle to dwell in, a resurrected body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, he talk, talking about our body, he's saying that our body initially is sown a natural body, but in the resurrection of the dead, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, don't get confused when it says spiritual body as if we're going to have some sort of ethereal spirit form. What he means here is that the body, instead of being a natural body, is now this new revamped spiritual body. The word body there still means it's physical. It's a physical body but it's also a spiritual body. And so we're going to put off our earthly tabernacle as this earthly body will decay and perish. But you must remember that this same body will be raised again from the dead as a new body. The same body will be raised again as a new body. And that's the hope that Peter has. Peter's death at the hands of Nero, he knows it's a temporary thing. All you're doing, Nero, is you're taking this tent off me so I can get a better tent, right? He's not afraid of it. He's not concerned with it. Yeah, death, it's not a great thing. Obviously, we don't necessarily want to go through the pain and the hardship and the suffering that comes with putting off this body, but we are spurred on because we know that in the future there is a better body. There is something better and we all have to take this body off at some point, but we will receive a new body 
and a mortal body, a perfect body, an imperishable body in the resurrection of the dead. And that is where Peter's great hope lies. When he gets to be like his Lord, a resurrected person. And his only concern is to prepare the church so that they do not fall before they put off their bodies too. Every, all the church, the most important things they need, especially now that he's going, Peter, the apostle, is gone. He wants to leave a legacy for them, a legacy of faith, a legacy of love to the next generation, that that church might triumph even in the midst of some great adversity. And that's my third point, leaving a legacy beyond our lifetime. Verse 15, And I'll make every effort, so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. See, Peter knows his death is going to rattle the church. This whole future events that are going to happen, he, know, he doesn't know exactly in the minute details, but he knows some hard times are coming. He knows it's going to rattle the church. He knows he's going to be gone and he won't be able to help them anymore. And so a great apprehension will arise as the apostles die off, the leaders of the church are gone, and now they're left to carry on the ministry of the church to the future generation. It's probably a scary time, you know, as you get further and further away from Christ. And the church deals with this time and time again, don't we? We remember those past generations, those giants of the faith, men who are even still alive today, who have done so much work for the kingdom, so much, uh, so many godly men and women who are just uh, investing so much in that future. But as they start to die off, we start to get a little concerned because we start to think, well, someone's got to take their baton. Someone's got to take this ship forward. Someone's got to keep going on. And as, as men and women of all generations start to die off, we start to get a bit concerned. But we must remember that God is not a one-generational thinker. He doesn't just stick with the one generation. Peter knows that things are going to continue after him. And he wants them fully prepared so that they too, when they die off, can leave the next generation fully prepared for what might come. He's concerned with fruitful ministry, making every effort, he says here, to give the church everything they need to thrive. And all the church need is faith, a faith in the gospel and a zeal for good works. See, Peter is concerned here about training leaders, about writing these things down and encouraging every Christian to grow in their faith. And if they do that, they will be in good company. But if they forget, if they wander away, they will find themselves increasingly in danger because he's going to go on to say some false teachers some prophets, false prophets, they're going to start to fill the vacuum that's left by the apostles. And you need to be careful that you keep my ways and that you are reminded of the things that I've taught you, not the things that these godless men are going to come in. And that's going to be the bulk of the rest of um, Peter that we're going to be dealing with is these men who are going to come in like wolves and try to scatter the sheep. Peter's a bit concerned about it. He's very careful to leave as many reminders as possible so that the Christians will not be led astray. But by God's grace, God has indeed left us with everything we need in His Word to avoid false teachings. If you stay in God's Word, you will not be held captive by false teachers. You will know when false teachers and false prophets say things that are erroneous, are false, those that try to lead us astray to profiteer off us, to gather glory for themselves. See, the marker of a good minister of the gospel is one who makes every effort not to speak new truth, not to introduce new things, but to remind people of the truth to remind people of the Word of God, to come back again and again and again to what the Scriptures say, rather than going on about creating divisions or quarrels. 
or loving every little new thing or every little doctrine that comes along, that we come back to the Word of God. And now the concern here of the Apostle Peter ought to be our concern too. We ought to pay very close attention to the kind of legacy that we leave to the next generation of Christians. That we can leave the next generation with a legacy of faith, with love, with good works. A culture that is saturated in the gospel and saturated in the kind of godly zeal that causes us to love God, to love our neighbor. We want to make every effort so that after we depart this earth, after we put off our bodies, we have left a legacy that the future generations will be able to recall true things. That they will be able to know truth. And that is the best legacy you can leave. Beyond money, beyond property, beyond any other inheritance, if you can give to your children truth, to the next generation, even if they're not your children, truth, you have given them something worth more than gold or silver. Absolutely worth more than anything else you can give to them. I'm not saying that you don't leave them those other things. Those are also good things. But I'm saying that if your effort is only here, then you're missing the most important. So be all the more encouraged, brothers and sisters, to imitate Peter as he imitates Christ. Jesus taught and repeated himself all the time. He constantly taught and taught and taught until people understood and grasped the truth. He had to tell his disciples three times that he was going to die and rise again on the third day, and they still didn't get it. They still didn't grasp it. Even then, the disciples needed the Holy Spirit to put all that Christ commanded them to repentance, uh, to remembrance. And God has called you, Christian, to the task of remembrance. And that means in your own household. And it means to not be concerned about how many times you have to repeat it. Because we know how many times we need it repeated for ourselves, let alone how much our children need these things repeated again and again and again. We need to teach each other as brothers and sisters and remind ourselves of true things again and again and again. Because that is what will cause us to grow up into the community that God has called us to be. And we know as parents how often we have to repeat things to our children, but we're the same as them. We need it too. So don't grow weary in this task. As Peter says, imitate him, he says, make every effort so that after your departure, when you leave this world and put your body off, the next generation will be able at any time to recall these things, the things that Peter has given to us. Be a strong watchman in your life. As Isaiah says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Fathers here, you who put the Lord to remembrance, take no rest. Mothers here, who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Brothers and sisters here, who help each other throughout the, the, the course of life, put the Lord in remembrance and take no rest. And God will give us no rest until Jerusalem is established and made a praise in all the earth. For Peter encourages us in our last section, just verse 10 to 11, and I'll finish with this. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Amen. How much do we want that for us and for the future generations? Because for in this way, there will be richly provided for you in an entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How wonderful, how beautiful. That is our hope. That is what we want. Let's pray. Our Father, how good it is to be put to remembrance all the things that you have called us to. To remind us again and again to be pursuing godliness, not just knowledge. To help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. So that we may have a living faith and not a dead faith, a useless faith, a passive faith. I pray
brothers and sisters who have been convict, uh, convicted over these last few weeks about their walk with you. I pray, Lord, that they would not leave here merely as hearers but doers, that they would leave here making changes in their life, that they would leave here making changes in their marriages and in their parenting and in their uh, relationships with those that are in the church and their friends and for those who need to know about Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us again and again and again to be uh, stirred up to love and good works as you have called the assembled gathering to do. Lord, would you do this work by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.